0: Hello and welcome to The HOA Show, where we discuss the news, problems, trends, and critical issues relating to life in a homeowner association. Join us every episode, and together we'll explore how to survive and thrive in the dizzying world of HOAs. Hello, and welcome to The HOA Show. I'm your host, Ryan Gazelle, and in this episode, we'll be discussing fiduciary duty and the business judgment rule. I'm joined today by two extremely knowledgeable people, Tom Ware of the law firm Kulik, Gottsman, Siegel & Ware, and Tim Klein of the Klein Agency Insurance Brokers. Tom has been practicing law since 1989, with his main focus being common interest developments, and was one of the attorneys of record for the prevailing party in the landmark California Supreme Court case, Narsted v. Lakeside Village Condominium Association, which established the legal framework and standards for enforcing CCNR provision. Thank you both for lending your expertise today. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Ryan. All right. So, Tim, I feel like we're in the presence of a, a legal celebrity here, at least in the HOA world, as far as that's concerned. Tom, you were involved, as I said, in the Narsted case, also in the Parth case, which we'll be discussing later. And as I understand it, you were pretty heavily involved in drafting the language for the California Civil Code changes on the fidelity bond requirements, correct?
1: Yes, and but I would like to say that the drafting civil code section 5806, which is the uh, Fidelity Bond Requirement Act, uh, Tim was instrumental in providing me with the information about what type of coverage we needed to make sure that associations were properly covered.
0: Excellent. Well, then I'm in the presence of two celebrities. <laughs> All right. So we're going to break this out into a couple of sections. First, we're going to talk about what is a fiduciary and why is it important to understand its definition in the context of an HOA. And then we're gonna discuss how to understand when and if you're acting as a fiduciary, and if so, what are your obligations and how can you protect yourself? So Tom, what exactly is a fiduciary?
1: Well, a fiduciary is a person that has a legal duty to protect someone else's benefit. And in doing so, they have to subordinate their own personal interests for the benefit of the other person.
0: All right, that's pretty clear and concise. And so in the context of an HOA, who exactly is a fiduciary?
1: Uh, A fiduciary in the context of an HOA is kind of an interesting concept because there's a lot of different functions that a homeowners association actually does. For example, a homeowners association, on the one hand, all the homeowners out there have a uniform interest in the financial viability of the homeowners association. And in this context, their relationship with the homeowners association is very much like a shareholder and a corporation. And that's the type of situation where you typically find fiduciary relationships. And on the other hand, the association also has uh, maintenance obligations and contractual obligations vis-a-vis the members. Those types of situations aren't ordinarily fiduciary relationships. So, oftentimes, what we're talking about, whether or not somebody's acting as a fiduciary, depends often on how many, what the function is. For example, in a homeowners association, the directors almost always owe a fiduciary duty to the corporation and the officers, similar to the corporation itself, to carry out those functions. Uh, the managers and the agents of the association under their contractual obligations they on the one hand they have that contractual obligation on the other hand they have obligations when they handle money and other type of issues were to protect the interests of the corporation those are also fiduciary type of responsibilities and that's been recognized by the legislature in the civil code sections five three seven five for example governing disclosures from um managing engagements and they also have requirements as to what they have to do to review and handle homeowner association money. Another situation where there might be a fiduciary relationship is when the developer controls the board of directors. And at that point in time, the developer is in a, somewhat of a conflict because on the one hand, the developer wants to sell out the project. To facilitate selling out the project, it's best to keep homeowner association assessments down. Uh, The flip side is the association entity itself needs appropriate funds to come in to build up their reserves, to take care of their maintenance obligations. So in that situation, while the developer has control of the board, the developer and the managing agents that sit on the board of directors, they have a fiduciary duty to advance the interests of the association rather than the interests of the developer in selling out the project.
0: Well, the developers could sure help us all out a lot if they would charge a little less for those homes.
1: Absolutely. But uh that's a different issue here.
2: You know, the interesting thing for me is does a fiduciary duty automatically create liability for a board? No. Is it is it inherently liable?
1: No, I don't think it automatically creates liability for a board because in the end it's a matter of it's just the first step in deciding what are your obligations? Because quite frankly, if these people are acting for the benefit of the corporation, then there's not going to be any liability. They will have discharged their fiduciary obligation.
0: All right. So we've got the developers and the association itself has a, a fiduciary obligation to the members, right?
1: There's some cases that suggest that. Yet under certain circumstances, the Homeowner Association has a fiduciary duty to the members themselves, and also the directors in some situation have a fiduciary duty to the members itself, but not all the time.
0: So as far as the owners, you mean, they don't always have a fiduciary duty to look out for the best interest of the association.
1: What the owners don't, but the directors and the association in certain circumstances have an obligation to protect the interests of the members themselves. And for example, when they control money, the members give money to the association. The association and the directors have a fiduciary obligation to the members in that situation to make sure that the money's not squandered, that it's used for the benefit of the corporation. But they don't always act. Every decision that the board makes or the association makes doesn't have to be for the benefit of an individual homeowner. For example, in many situations, the individual's interests conflict with the interests of the community as a whole. We're talking about like enforcing of governing documents, for example. There's a case that says that a homeowner association has a fiduciary obligation to enforce the governing documents. Um, But that doesn't mean when it enforces the governing documents, it has to look out for the interest of one individual owner, because, for example, if the owner, you know, is paints their house black in a community where there's architectural restrictions that prohibit that the homeowners association has an interest in enforcing the restriction to make the homeowner comply which is not in the interest of the homeowner per se so the fiduciary obligations to the community as a whole not to any individual homeowner uh, particular interest
0: Okay. So if you are a board member or a manager, does that mean that you're always acting as a fiduciary for the association?
1: No. In fact, that in this example that I mentioned, when you're basically dealing with that homeowner uh, vis-a-vis the homeowner, you're not acting as the fiduciary. You're in essence acting kind of like tantamount to almost like a landlord-tenant type of relationship. And in a landlord-tenant relationship, that's not fiduciary. For example, if you were Maintaining the common area—that's not a fiduciary obligation. On the one hand, the association has an obligation to do it to that extent. That's fiduciary to the whole community. But the actual act of carrying out the maintenance obligations—that's not a fiduciary duty. That's dealing with more ordinary maintenance, landlord-tenant type of relationship, making sure the property's safe. Which there's case law suggests that that is like ordinary man standard. And the significance of that is a fiduciary has a more heightened level of obligations, uh, as I mentioned earlier, to protect the other person's interests rather than just the acting in it with ordinary care.
0: So the fiduciary aspect of it only comes into play when you're placing or you're weighing your own interests as opposed to the associations. Uh,
1: yes. Basically, what happens is when, when you're talking about stuff like keeping of funds, things where somebody's vested trust into the entity or the director or the person to protect their particular interest in that capacity. That's when you're talking about a fiduciary duty.
0: Okay. I think if uh, you and Tim and I formed a band, we might have to call it fiduciary duty. We are fiduciary duty. (laughs) So Tom, what are the duties of a fiduciary?
1: Well, there are basically three main categories of duties. The first is the duty of loyalty. Second is like a, a duty to act within the scope of their authority. And and third, there's like a, what's called a duty of care. Now the duty of loyalty really is what people refer to as the duty to act in good faith. Fiduciaries cannot act in, for any association related decision for their own personal gain or interest. Their decisions need to be based on what's the best interest of the community as a whole. So that's the first part about it. And as part and parcel of that duty in good faith, they have to make sure that they're not acting with a conflict of interest. So in a situation where there's a decision to be made and the director, for example, has a financial interest in the decision, The director has like an obligation not to either one not to participate in that decision because of this conflict of interest or alternatively to disclose it to the members and make sure that whatever decision that is being made is being made for the benefit of the corporation, not to benefit that individual.
0: So as far as if you're on the board and you have a cousin, a relative, uh, a friend that is bidding for you.
1: Right, exactly. For example, if you, let's say in in the context of an HOA, the way it would come up, you're a contractor, you're sitting on a board of directors, and the board says, hey, we have to re-roof all the buildings out here. And the board member says, hey, you know what? I could do that for you, and I could do, I think I could do it for you at a cheaper rate than everybody else you're getting. Now, the mere fact that the director is going to be paid as part of this transaction, by itself doesn't violate the fiduciary duty. But it has to be done in a manner that is for the benefit of the corporation. All the directors have to be, be, it has to be disclosed to all the directors this potential conflict. And also, in the hindsight analysis, the actual decision needs to be in a manner that actually benefits the corporation rather than the individual. And I will tell you that, you know, despite what I just went through, the fact is, you know, possibly permissible in most situations, we would typically say don't do it.
0: And these same obligations would extend to the property manager if, for example, they had uh, janitorial services or insurance services or something along those lines?
1: Exactly. They'd have to basically make sure it's disclosed to the directors. And in, in hindsight, it's got to be reasonably beneficial to the homeowners association.
0: Okay. That uh, sounds like a lot of responsibility to keep track of.
1: Right. And there's another part of this is like a duty to maintain confidence as part of the good faith. And this one comes up a lot in homeowner associations, volunteer boards, is that the duty to maintain confidence, the HOA gets a lot of privileged communications. They get privileged communications from the attorneys. They get financial information from the members. And they have a duty to maintain all of that. And so they can't like basically take the financial you know they have their neighbors that's not paying their assessments they can't you know try to guilt that neighbor into paying their assessments by disclosing to the other members that they're delinquent they can't take a communication from an attorney that perhaps they don't agree with let's say the board is split three to two on whether to take a certain action and they get an opinion from an attorney and the minority in this decision doesn't like the attorney's opinion they can't distribute it to the members for any type of political purposes, or to even say, oh, look at the board is wrong, and look at how egregious this opinion is. They, even if they don't agree with the opinion, the directors have an obligation to maintain that confidence with rare exceptions to that. You know, for example, if the directors were going to engage in a criminal activity, obviously the you know, minority director has an obligation to the corporation to make sure that they don't agree uh, engaging activity that exposes the corporation and the members to, you know, liability. So that would be the one exception to what we're talking about here.
2: Tom, if, if a board member embezzles, obviously that's actionable and so forth, but if they just disclose confidential information that impacts something, is there any teeth in that? I mean, are there any repercussions for that member other than showing to be a, 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 a not a good person?
1: Well, is there any repercussion? I suppose it depends on what actually happens to the corporation itself. Does the corporation sustain any damage as a result of that? If so, then the director themselves could be uh, sued as a result of that. And, he, if, you know, try, the association may seek to try to hold that director liable for any damage that comes out of it. I mean, I would say that 99% of the time, improper disclosure is not going to necessarily lead to any type of liability. But certainly, it can, and if the associate, even short of that, if the association is concerned that the director is disclosing confidential information, the association could go to court to at least enjoin that director from doing so, and in which case, that director might be liable for attorneys' fees and costs of the association having to do that.
0: Well, before we get further into the consequences, are there any other duties that we need to be aware of?
1: Yes. Uh, as part of this uh, fiduciary duty, they have a duty to act within the scope of their authority. Now, that's somewhat amorphous, but really what that is saying is, look, it, you have to attempt to comply with state laws and comply with your governing documents. And it's not necessarily, they have to have strictly complied with it, but they need to make an informed effort to actually comply with that. So, for example, if they don't know what the state law is, and there's something that might be impacting their decisions it's incumbent upon them to go speak with an attorney or 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 their management company and then if they don't understand completely their governing documents they need to actually take some steps to make sure that they are attempting to comply with that whether that again whether it's consulting with their attorney or their management company but that they have an obligation in order on, to try to comply with all of the state laws, the governing documents, and that's part of their fiduciary duty.
0: Well, does that extend? I mean, obviously, what you're talking about is, you know, the board members' obligations acting within the scope of their knowledge. Does that extend to the property manager as well? I mean, would you expect that a property management company or manager should be aware of the California Civil Code requirements, whereas you wouldn't expect that of a board member?
1: I think, depending on the sophistication of the board, I think they're all different. You have to keep in mind that in California, there's no requirement that a board member be trained.
0: Is there a requirement for a manager to be trained?
1: It's not so much a requirement for the manager to be trained, but a lot of there for example, CACM has a code of ethics that requires managers to you know, comply with certain uh, standards of care. And one of the standards of care is that the managers are familiar with their governing documents and with the davis Sterling Act. So I think that in that situation, I think it is reasonable for a homeowners association to be able to expect that their management company is familiar and help them. And then quite frankly, if the management agent is not familiar with a particular issue, that's when the management agent should be reaching out to counsel Uh, And same thing with the directors, too. If the directors feel that they can't get this information from the management agent, then they should be seeking the uh, legal advice under that circumstance.
0: So in order to kind of make sure that the manager has some sort of a a fiduciary obligation, it may be behoove the board of directors to hire managers that do participate in uh, professional organizations. Yeah.
1: Yes. You know, CAI, CACM both have credentials or they're doing training for the management companies. And I think under both of them, they, there's an expectation that the management companies are going to be familiar with the Davis Drilling Act and the, you know, corporations code and the governing documents.
0: Any other duties we should be aware of?
1: Yeah, the, the, this is a duty of care. They have a duty. And we kind of touched on this a little bit in the context of Uh, talking about acting within the scope of authority. But they have a duty of ordinary care. And what that really means is this. Ordinary care and uh, heightened care based on their fiduciary standing. And this is often referred to as a duty of reasonable inquiry and informed consent. And this is the, in a way, in California, this is really what we're referring to as the business judgment rule. It's both the standard for carrying out their duties. And it's also, later on, it becomes the defense to any potential liability. But in essence, what they have to do is, you know, investigate, act with a reasonable investigation. And um, as you mentioned before, the PARTH case basically says that it requires a diligent investigation of the actual, it's a standard of diligence. They have to exercise diligence in performing all of their duties. And now in the course of doing that, They're allowed to rely on information, opinions, reports, or statements, including financial statements and other financial data presented by other officers or employees of the association, other directors. They can rely on legal counsel and accountants. They can rely on committees of the association. Uh, They can even rely on volunteers and other people within the community that the directors believe that the issue at hand was within that person's professional or expert competence. But they have to reasonably believe that such people are reliable and competent.
0: So vis-a-vis a contractor asking him if he's an owner in the association for advice on how to proceed?
1: Yes. For example, if you had an engineer in the community and you say, you know, hey, we got these uh, balcony decks and we're wondering whether we need to have them inspected or anything. And, you know, they could go to speak for, with the, an engineer in the community. And if they believe that was within his expertise, And he looks at it and says, no, no, I think you're okay for right now. I mean, potentially, depending on the other factors involved, they might be able to rely on that on a short-term basis. And, you know, flip side is that if you told them to go get somebody out there to look at it, then they probably should be doing that.
0: So essentially, the business judgment rule is saying rely upon experts, seek out expert advice for those things which you don't have the knowledge to move forward on.
1: I wouldn't say that regard, it can do that. It's not like a mandatory requirement that they do it. They have to make a reasonable investigation. For example, sometimes when you make the reasonable investigation does not necessitate having to talk to experts or anything. It's within the common knowledge of the directors. But in those situations where the directors themselves have reason to believe that they don't have the right uh, knowledge or background to make this decision, then yes, they should be seeking out experts and uh, consultants that do.
0: So sort of like if you go to the beach and uh, there's not a lot of waves, you can reasonably look and say, I'm not going to drown. But you might think twice if the waves are bigger and say, I better check with the lifeguard.
1: Yes, that's a good example.
2: All right. But if they do do this reasonable inquiry and the decision ends up being wrong, the business should not really give them some protection, yes?
1: Yes. The business judgment rule actually gives them some protection. I mean, it's the standard ultimately that their actions will be judged on a liability standpoint if there is ever a lawsuit. But it doesn't prevent the directors or the association or any of the other fiduciaries from being sued itself. In the end, because of the Parth case that we talked about, it's going to be this idea of reasonable diligence, which is now conditioned for application of the business judgment rule. And when breaking that down, the corporation's code sets forth the requirements for a director or officer to invoke this business judgment rule. And and they can do it if they've demonstrated they've exercised reasonable diligence. But the real issue with that is that reasonable diligence is really kind of synonymous with negligence. And negligence is a kind of issue of fact that ordinarily has to be tried. So the corollary effect of this is that if you act in accordance with you, you, have the protection of the business judgment rule, but oftentimes we have to basically try the whole case in order to prove that you've complied with the business judgment rule.
0: Can we, let's jump into the Parth case, because I'm fascinated by this case. Tell us what happened. Who was Ms. Parth? how did you get involved? What was the end result?
1: In addition to uh, representing homeowner associations uh, as general counsel, uh, my office, for probably going back to the Narsted case, we've done uh, director and officers' defense work. We get retained by insurance companies, defend homeowner associations, their officers, directors, and managers when they're sued and they've tendered to their uh, directors and officers' uh, insurance policy. So that's what ordinarily would happen. In the case of, let's say, a director, any director or any association is sued for basically breaching their fiduciary duty, it's typically going to get tendered to their directors and officers' insurance. And so that's what happened in PARTH. And uh, PARTH is somewhat unique in that usually when a director gets sued, they're sued by a homeowner or some other entity for their actions. In the PARTH case, the homeowners association itself sued Ms. Parth, who was the former president of the association for years. At the time the case went to trial, she was 89 years old, and they were suing her for damages. They asked for like 1.9 million at trial relating to a series of actions that Ms. Parth allegedly took over a 10-year period of time. And uh, in essence, their claim was that Ms. Parth was acting outside the scope of authority, that she was like a rogue director. She, ex- she did not comply with any of the governing documents or the Davis-Sterling Act. And that in the course of doing so, there was a number of alleged breaches, but the most serious ones were that she unilaterally hired a contractor that re-roofed the project. This contractor turned out not to have insurance and they claimed that they needed a new roof, which was about $1.1 million. And then also the other thing that was alleged was that Ms. Parth uh, signed loan documents for approximately $1.7 million in loans that were used for common area repairs. But under the governing documents, obtaining these loans required a vote of the members, which Ms. Parth and board she was on, never uh, sought or actually obtained. So she was being sued for that. And in the...
0: By the board of directors, the new board.
1: Yes, the new board, right. So what ends up happening is that prior to PARTH, I could tell you doing d cases, what we used to do, we used to basically assert that the business judgment rule, and this is consistent with how it was originally developed, emanating from Delaware, is that, Under common law, the business judgment rule created a presumption of good faith. So all these duties that we just talked about, there was a presumption that the directors acted in accordance with those duties. And if you filed an action to basically challenging the conduct of the board of directors, it became the challenging party's obligation to rebut that presumption. And you couldn't rebut it by just demonstrating negligence. The cases law suggested that you needed to demonstrate gross negligence or willful misconduct on behalf of the director. So for years, for 20 years, you know, we'd file summary judgment motions in, in these DNO cases on behalf of the directors. And we'd say, hey, we'd get a declaration from the director. I acted in good faith. I believed that the actions were in the best interest of the corporation. And then we'd say, hey, we shifted the burden. You, challenging party, you have to demonstrate that this director acted with willful misconduct or gross negligence, which is very hard to do. So we would get summary judgment motions granted. And that's what happened in Part. We've got a summary judgment in Ms. Parth's favor. And so, you know, it looks like it's done. But what ends up happening, because here's the thing, because the basis of our argument at the summary judgment level was that even if Ms. Parth had made mistakes in judgment. You know, she believed that she was acting in conformance with the governing documents. and She believed that she was acting in good faith. And there was no evidence of any self-dealing. She didn't like, there was no allegations that she received kickbacks or got extra benefits or, you know, somehow received uh, money as part of this, or was doing it for any purpose other than to try to benefit the corporation.
0: It was just an assertion that she made bad choices.
1: Right. And the trial judge agreed, said, oh, this business judgment rule, you know, see you later. And this was appealed. And on appeal, the Court of Appeal disagreed. The Court of Appeal, in essence, sets a new standard for the HOAs, at least as it relates to business judgment rule. And I say that, I will tell you that some people would argue that characterization, but the real point is this. In California, going back years ago, the business judgment rule got codified, as I mentioned before, in the Corporations Code. And in the Corporations Code, they have a language that basically says that the standard of care is that there is a duty of reasonable inquiry. Now, in the common law, that wasn't really there. So, the court of appeal ultimately says well that's got to mean something and really what it m- must mean is that in order to invoke the protection of the business judgment rule the the person seeking that protection must now demonstrate that they acted with reasonable diligence now with respect to that that really means that there is no presumption of good faith so the court of appeal reversed the judgment and so that sent it back down and required us to try the case
0: so they're no longer innocent until proven guilty now if there's a question brought up you have to prove that you are innocent while they have to prove that you are guilty
1: yeah you'd have to basically demonstrate to the court this is standard you have to do at the summary judgment level and you'd have to do it at trial level it's just harder to do at the summary judgment level you'd have to demonstrate that you acted reasonably as an ordinary person would under like circumstances, that you acted with reasonable diligence. So when we get sent back down to the trial court and it's tried, what we ended up doing at trial court, convincing the court, is that if we brought in all this information, it's kind of along the lines of what you suggested earlier, that, you know, Ms. Part did not act Unilaterally, that she acted with knowledge and consent of the entire board, the entire, on all the decisions at issue. Uh, we introduced evidence that, and the court found that the actual contractor that was hired was licensed. And we also basically introduced evidence that there was no uh, resulting damage, that the plaintiffs did not demonstrate any, you know, construction defect as a result of the contractor's work. And then we asked, that Miss Partha, at least with respect to the loans, had relied on her management agents and had an expectation that the management agent who was involved with obtaining all the loans, that there was evidence that the management agent was you know, participating in this, There wasn't a rogue thing, and that under the circumstances, it was reasonable to believe that she was acting in good faith and had discharged her obligations as a fiduciary. When they entered the loans, and again, these loans were used for ultimately used for common area purposes. The association got the benefit of these, arguably, and and in the end, they were all paid off. So there was no real damage there. So we were able to demonstrate that she did comply with her fiduciary duties, and that she was entitled to protection under the business judgment rule. And court found for Miss Parth, but the real net point to this that for our discussion is that it took $900,000 of attorney's fees to reach that conclusion.
0: Wow. And was miss, go ahead, Tim.
2: I was just going to say nine times out of 10, when we see a directors and officers liability claim, they've also named the management agent. Yes. Does the management agent also benefit from the business judgment rule? I mean, granted that the the management no. agreement that the board signs says that the board will indemnify the manager right for acts or omission except for cases of gross negligence and willful misconduct so again so we have that same language uh, in the management agreement so i'm wondering how that plays out for the manager
1: a business judgment rule does not apply to the manager at least there's no uh, it's certainly not under the corporation's code and there's no case law yet that would extend it to him and they, the manager's defense in this really typically the way we would end up defending the manager in a situation like this is that one as you point out they have the indemnity obligation and two quite frankly if the association in most situations if they're acting as the agent for the association so if the directors and officers are acting reasonably and diligent then that eners to the benefit of the manager as well so it's kind of their liability is typically symbiotic with the actual directors and officers
0: Tim, I have a question for you, because I think it comes up quite often, and I think there's some uh, confusion around it. In this Parth case, you know, would the board of directors that's bringing a lawsuit against Ms. Parth expect for their D&O carrier to pay for the lawsuit?
2: That's interesting. And maybe Tom would be the best person to respond to that. I know there's some issues regarding derivative claims and some challenges in terms of insurance language. Tom, what's your read on this?
1: whether they expect it or not, most of the time it would. And I could tell you this with respect to the Parth case right now, the Parth case is still up on appeal on both the liability and the award of attorney's fees. There was an award of attorney's fees and benefit of Parth. That's still up on appeal. And one of the issues on appeal is whether or not Ms. Parth can recover attorney's fees against the association if in fact the association paid for her policy that provided her a
0: defense did the dno carrier pay for the attorney's fees that were going after miss parth the
1: allegation and there's some you know technical evidentiary issues about that but the allegation from the association is that the carrier paid for Ms. Parth's defense. The HOA's carrier paid for defense and therefore the HOA's carrier is not allowed to get attorney's fees back from the association.
0: Got it. But the DNO carrier is not going to pay for a lawsuit brought against somebody. Typically, yes, you're right.
2: But for our listeners, I think it's important to define what obligations directors and officers liability policies have and general liability policies as well. And that is there's really two components being provided in terms of protection for the association or for the board of directors in this circumstance. And that is the, the policy provides defense, a cost, and if the board is found to have committed an act or omission, uh, the indemnity payment. Yeah, the $900,000, is that what the attorneys representing the, asso- or the board member incurred to defend her?
1: That's what Ms. Parth incurred to defend the case.
2: Great. So, so, that we want to make sure that you buy a policy that doesn't have eroding limits. And that is, if you have a DO policy where the defense costs erode the limits, that $900,000 could be deducted from your liability limit. And the only amount left would be you know, the balance that could be paid for any indemnity payment. So, it's really important that you get defense outside the limits. So, in a case like this, it really ends up being quite expensive from a defense standpoint, you still have the resulting limits to pay any indemnity payment you may be obligated to pay.
0: So, Tom, what can a fiduciary do to protect themselves and mitigate their liability exposure? Uh, Was there something Ms. Parth could have done differently?
1: Well, I think in hindsight, there's always like acting differently in hindsight. But I think the real thing that directors need to do, and this this was actually invoked in Parth as well, is that I think you need to check your governing documents if you're going to serve on a board of directors, for example, as to whether or not there are exculpatory clauses in the governing documents. A lot of governing documents have provisions that provide the uh, directors, and sometimes even the association, can't be liable to the homeowners, or the association for that matter, if they act in good faith with attempt to carry out the obligations of the corporation. And I think that's uh, important for somebody who wants to serve on a volunteer board to know. The other thing that's important is a civil code section 5800, which really is like a stop loss statute. It basically says that if a director acts in good faith while serving on a volunteer board of directors, that they won't be liable in excess of the coverage provided by the association, assuming that the homeowners association maintains this coverage specified under the civil code section itself. So that, when you serve on, there's limits on that and it's tiered based on how many units you have there, uh, how much coverage you need. And the uh, board member should basically make sure if they're gonna serve on a volunteer board that their homeowners association has the appropriate insurance coverage so they do have this protection. And another condition of that that a lot of people don't really focus on is that if you only get this protection under the the civil code section if you don't own more than two units. So, for example, if you own five units in a, you know, 500-unit condominium project, if you serve on the board, you're not going to have the protection of this civil code section.
0: But presumably, Ms. Parts CCNRs had that exculpatory clause in it, right? So that doesn't prevent you from being sued.
1: No, none of this prevents you from being sued. Even the civil coach section, nothing. Uh, the only thing that prevents you from being sued is don't serve on the board, I suppose.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's usually the problem. We need people to volunteer, but this stuff
1: is yeah, scary. That's
2: a podcast for another day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no. And I, again, I'm not trying to discourage people from serving on boards because it's important Role because in, in part, I think uh, one of the big things, a lot of homeowner associations do have problems with apathy in the community and trying to get volunteers to participate is a struggle. So I think it's very important. I do think that, like I said, you can't prevent somebody from suing you, unfortunately. But uh, I think a lot of it is trying to exercise this reasonable diligence to mitigate or reduce the likelihood of a claim. And if there is a claim, you know, providing people that are defending you with the opportunity to invoke the business judgment rule and the sculpatory clause, and in worst case scenario, Civil Code section 5800.
0: Tim, did you want to speak at all to the Civil Code section 5800 as far as the limits that are
2: required to be maintained? Well, there's such such low limits. It's kind of embarrassing. And I think something that maybe the California legislature should look at it's a, my recollection is the board is only required to maintain $500,000 worth of directors and officers liability coverage. It's less than 100 units. or a million dollars in directors and officers liability coverage, it's more than 100 units. <laughs> but, you know, in California, we certainly think that you need much higher limits than that.
0: And as we saw in the Parth case, the defense costs alone for Ms. Parth were $900,000.
1: Right. And also what tends to happen is that the claim itself will end up going above the coverage limits. This actual statute itself hasn't really been litigated as to what the impact of that would be. There's not clarity as to what happens if there's, for example, if there's a coverage dispute. If there's somebody being defended under a reservation of rights and they have a million dollars of coverage and there's a $800,000 judgment, what happens if the afterwards, there's a the deck relief action that says that the insurance company doesn't know any of it. Does, the, does that mean that the director has no liability to pay any of it? Or because, it's, you know, there's no coverage there, or are we talking about, you know, they can't be in excess of the coverage limits. It's that's a little bit unclear.
0: Yeah, that, that is a, a good question. Cause I mean, the idea of the civil code is that if you maintain the limits that they require, then you're protected from personal liability, right?
1: That would be the idea. But like I said, that is an ambiguity in that statute as to what that
0: means. So maintain the limits.
2: Well, I think the interesting thing is that if they don't have the financial wherewithal to pay the shortfall, there's going to be a special assessment.
0: Yes, that's true.
2: So even though there's a protection in the the law, a special assessment, nevertheless, will probably be the remedy to raise the money necessary to make folks whole.
0: Well if your liability is not limited by the limits required in the civil code section what's the point in adhering to those requirements
1: Well I think you adhere to the requirements in in part because I do think for example if there was coverage certainly that's pretty clear that this person it'd be very valuable to have this uh, stop loss provision on your potential liability because if you do comply with the requirements and there is coverage Look, let's say that there is the $800,000 judgment and there's a million dollar coverage and there is no reservation of rights or there is no declaration that there is no obligation to indemnify. Let's go million dollar coverage. You get a $1.2 million judgment. So then the person doesn't have liability for that extra $200,000 plaintiff has to go over just after the it has to be limited to the insurance coverage. So that's a valuable thing. And also, by the way, that's an important issue that I point out to directors all the time. You know, they do extra services for the community and they say, oh, I want to be paid for that. You know, whatever that value that they would get for it is not worth the uh, potential opening up of their exposure under 5,800.
0: And that's because they'd be being paid, so they're no longer a volunteer?
1: Arguably, yeah.
0: Hmm. Tim, any other uh, questions or or thoughts?
2: You know, we've given a lot of uh, added anxiety for current board members out there, I'm sure. But, you know, I think it's interesting when you look at this whole circumstance, if you're asked to serve on the board, I think the average board member is making the decision about whether or not they actually have the time. And these other matters, liability, for decisions is not even in their in their wheelhouse at that time
1: no I think you're right I don't think a lot of people think about this I think what's really important and I actually think this is part of the reason you know the attorneys and the uh, managing agents really can help their directors in this regard is that you know we have a ability to provide them with information even information they don't necessarily know that they need for example you know, if you get a request inquiry into, oh, can we do X, Y, and Z? Sometimes you can answer the question by just saying yes, right? And they run on their way. But if you don't give them additional tools as to, you know, the basis of what they should be doing, maybe some other issues that they're not even thinking about at that point in time, you know, you could be inadvertently, you know, setting them up for failure. And they, at the same time, if you basically explain to them what, they're, what we're talking about here, here's your duty here. And really when you back it up, it's not that hard, really. They, okay, don't act with a conflict. Don't disclose private communications. If they do that, I mean, you can't say that there won't be any potential liability under these circumstances, but I think you're pretty safe. Here's something that is encouraging that since I gave all this doom and gloom, when we were doing the PART appeals, the Marsh book on corporations, they had an article on, you know, fiduciary. And as at that point in time, they said that there is no case in all of the United States at the time, I did this a couple of years ago, at which a director of any corporation, not just a volunteer corporation, had been liable, found personally liable for negligence. So I don't know if that's still the case. And I don't know what the basis of that statement was in Marsh. But I can tell you that we, you know, doing with the part of the appeal, we would look to see if we could find cases dealing with personal liability of directors. And certainly we found no published cases on it. And so it's still, if you basically act in good faith, you know, try to uh, rely on your experts, you know, don't do things for your own benefit and document what you're doing too, why you did it. I think you're pretty safe
0: as well as uh, maintaining the civil code limits.
1: Yes, maintain your insurance, make sure you have insurance are very important.
0: great. This has been uh, fascinating, Tom. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Great stuff.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Where can our listeners go if they want more information from you or information like this?
1: Well, it's interesting. I spoke on this issue of uh, fiduciaries at the CAA Law Seminar two years ago, with Darren Bevan of Badalyn and uh, Jacobson at Sacramento and Scott Weiss, and he's at Ortali, Kelly Law Firm in Nashville, Tennessee. And I have an article that is entitled uh, Fiduciaries, Everything You Thought You Knew, with a lot of the issues we have spoke about today and, and the law that backs it up. And if you're interested, you can go to my website at kgswlaw.com and go to my website, profile, and there's a art, it's under articles. You can find that article there.
0: Great. That's it for our show today. Special thanks to our experts, Tom Ware and Tim Klein for their time and wisdom. As we end our episode, we'd like to remind our listeners that if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for topics that you'd like to learn more about, you can email us at feedback at hoashow.org. Join us next time on The HOA Show. To share or subscribe to the HOA Show, visit us at hoashow.org. There, you'll be able to listen to other episodes, find helpful resources relating to HOAs, provide feedback, submit questions, and check out other great stuff. The HOA Show podcast has been made possible by the contributions of Klein agency insurance brokers, leaders in the community association industry. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast, its presenters and guests do not constitute legal advice. For more information on how the topics and discussion apply to you, please consult with
1: your own legal counsel.